seen with what we know about the consequences of poorly designed algorithmic systems, that even though we know they're brittle, even though we know they have mistakes, even though we know that they contain errors, we still, as humans, are persuaded and they influence our perceptions of the world. G'day, and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. Ellen Broad is a self-described data policy wonk, having worked for the British Open Data Institute, the Dutch International Federation of Library Associations, CSIRO's Data61 Project, and the Australian Digital Alliance. She currently works as a senior fellow at the Australian National University's 3A Institute, which will be familiar to listeners who enjoyed our episode number 79, Genevieve Bell on AI, anthropology, and the ob obligation to make things better. Ellen's 2018 book is Made by Humans, The AI Condition, and it's a delight to have her on the podcast today. Ellen, let me start off with uh, your trajectory to, uh, to getting into the issues you work on today. You studied English literature, French, philosophy and law at the University of Western Australia. So how did that take you to working on data? Uh, well, in a way, it was complete luck. Uh, I definitely, I think I said this in the book, but if you had told me when I graduated university that in you know more than a decade on I'd be working on data and artificial intelligence I just would have looked at you with deep confusion um, so I I think so, so whilst I was at university I remember distinctly being much more interested in earning money in jobs alongside university so that meant that by the time I graduated my double degree I had many different uh, skills and kinds of experience on my CV in different countries. I, I moved to Paris and I worked in a jazz cafe. I did a bunch of jobs around Perth, but nothing that would really put me in good standing for any of the jobs that I should actually have been applying for after I graduated from university. So public service jobs, law jobs. And even though I'd been working for a firm throughout my university studies and I was a really good employee. I've always been a very good worker. I enjoy work. I enjoy the satisfaction I get from um, completing um, things for other people. They just said to me when we did the job interviews and I participated in the job interview process, I remember distinctly that we would talk about interesting New Yorker articles and what I wanted where I wanted to travel next and um, books that I'd enjoyed reading and not at all about what I wanted to do in five years time as a lawyer or the part of the firm I was interested in working for. And they just said mm. to me, look, you're not interested in being a lawyer and there are people in front of you in the line who are interested and you shouldn't have a job with us. And in a way that kind of just crystallized for me that I was a bit lost. And I started hunting around for any jobs that would take me and I just lucked into running the Australian Digital Alliance in Canberra. And then from then on, 
just became more and more interested in technology. So it was just no, none of the jobs I thought I could have would take me. And then the job that I did get ended up being this wonderful um, stepping stone for a career that I hadn't anticipated having. You're wonderfully honest in the book about uh, the rejections. You talk about uh, 21 rejections from every law firm and government agency that you applied to. Uh, how did you how did you bounce back from that? How did you, how did you ensure that uh, that knocked you sideways rather than backwards? I remember. Th so I'm not sure if this is the way. Um, positions are announced anymore but when I was at law school there's a particular day on which you all get your offers at the same time and I remember vividly I was in my boss at the Times house in Shenton Park in Perth and watching my email inbox and my phone all morning waiting for these offers to come that never did and that day being really devastated like I remember you know I was at uh, the University of Western Australia, which is a group of eight university. My friends were all very high achieving um, law students. And I'd obviously just been working for one of the best law firms in Western Australia. And so it felt like I was quite alone in having no job offers on that particular day while friends of mine were getting, you know, the best outcome is that you get five or six and then you have to decide which one you're going to take and the agony is supposed to be in having too many choices and yet I just kind of real remember the silence. Um, but I don't know, like I've never, I just think I, I, I was really devastated and then particularly after speaking to the law firm who said, look, you just weren't interested in working for us I just kind of moved on. I just thought, well, I've always been very much um, about not staying still. And I think that perhaps makes it easier to bounce back from failure because I couldn't dwell on it. I just had to say, okay, I didn't get what I wanted by this route. Maybe I'll come back to this route in a year's time. For now, what matters is that I find a job and I find a job that I'm interested in. So I just, I just, yeah, I, I just have to move on. And I think that's the perspective I've taken whenever I've had significant failures is there's only so long I can really dwell on that pain and confusion. I think that confusion of thinking you're doing something and then finding out all of a sudden the mental plans you've been making for yourself have been um, thrown up in the air. I just, I push myself down another path. So I love the story because you're so extraordinarily successful in this uh, area of data science right now. Uh, and it's it's a great reminder of the role that luck plays in, uh, in people's careers, but also the importance of resilience. And presumably from that, also developing a greater sense of compassion and empathy for uh, for others who uh, haven't always had uh, had golden paths. Uh, you uh, you say that you, you really enjoyed working on the technology issues, the Australian Digital Alliance, and, and then found yourself at the Open Data Institute in London, uh, w which was an organisation formed by the internet creator Tim Berners-Lee. What was it like to, uh, to work with Tim Berners-Lee? So Tim is uh, very, so he was the inventor of the World Wide Web, I should clarify, not the internet. Thanks for pulling me up. 
No, it's, it's something that happens all the time. And in fact, there's a famous photo of him wearing Vince Cerf's t-shirt, I invented the internet, and Vince Cerf wearing Sir Tim Berners-Lee's t-shirt, I invented the World Wide <laughs> Web, because the confusion is uh, common. Um, so he, he's extremely humble and very quiet. And whenever he was in the office, he just wanted to work on whatever he was working on. So he just, I think, set a particular tone um, that went from our senior leadership down. He was very close to my boss, Jenny Tennyson, um, that they are very humble and very interested in doing good work, irrespective of the praise that might be attached to it. Um, and I almost felt like, I remember um, he'd come to the ODI summit. Well, he'd, you know, he'd arrive having cycled across London on his fold-up bike. And we were like, yeah, the inventor of the World Wide Web is just cycling <laughs> to the summit like the rest of us. He's just a very humble, unassuming person who is just interested in interesting things and interesting people. Uh, and you've you've worked in a whole lot of different areas of, uh, of data. I wonder if we might uh, delve into some of them and uh, think about some of the issues that arise. Uh, you write uh, in uh, Made by Humans about the first machine-judged beauty competition. Uh, tell us about that uh, that competition and uh, and how it unfolded. So. I don't know if we're really doing them anymore, but a few years ago, this must be what, three or four years ago, there was a spate of um, AI powered competitions and AI powered replacements um, for different humans. And this was a particular competition. It was billed as the first uh, beauty pageant to be judged by artificial intelligence. and. I should clarify that the reason there was so much excitement and interest in using artificial intelligence to judge things was that we acknowledge up front that humans have biases, we have uh, cultural experiences that precondition us to thinking some things are more interesting or more efficient or more beautiful than others. So the goal was that perhaps we could produce artificial intelligence that was more objective or more rational, unbiased than humans could be. But as we've learned over the last um, probably half a decade now at least, but there have been people who have been talking about this for a lot longer, it's much more complicated than that. So in this particular example, the in order to train the artificial intelligence to judge beauty standards, the agent, the, the artificially intelligent agent was trained on a data set of, uh, I think it was magazine images and cover images of models and failed to take into account that most of the images that are presented to us in beauty magazines and most of the models that we see on our television screens and in the pages of magazines are white. Yeah. So even though the competition was for people around the world and it was really emphasised that it would um, judge standards of beauty by many different criteria, in the end, because of the overwhelming homogeneity of the data set, the... Um, AI judge, it wasn't even explicitly taught. That was something that the CTO said, which kind of is, is really interesting, is this, the, the artificial intelligence wasn't taught that whiteness corresponds with beauty. There was no explicit directions 
for it to learn that white um, corresponded with beauty. But in the end, I think of the 45, and my numbers are gonna be slightly off, but it was of about 45 winners judged as kind of beautiful by the standards of the competition. 40 were white. One, one was Asian and four, I think, might have been African-American. I can't, but I remember it was overwhelmingly white. And he said, we never taught it to see whiteness. It just happened. It was the result of a homogenous data set teaching the computer that whiteness corresponded with beauty. Another one of my favourite stories out of your book is about uh, the uh, restaurant The Shed in Dulwich, uh, which became London's top-rated re restaurant on uh, TripAdvisor. Uh, tell us the, the tale. I love this one because it's not really about um, any nefarious computer-generated software. It's um, a enterprising journalist who has a history of introducing fraud and fakeries. He, he uh, broke into Paris Fashion Week in another story. And this particular set of stories that he wrote was about how he gamed the TripAdvisor algorithm to bring his shed in Dulwich to the top of TripAdvisor's best restaurants in London. And he goes through the way in which he did this. He um, created a set of fake accounts to write reviews. He consistently wrote reviews. He created images of the food. He did a range of things to um, trick the TripAdvisor algorithm into thinking that these were interactions with a real restaurant. What I love about it, so, so it really did become the top restaurant in London for a time. And, and um, people used to talk about how difficult it was to make reservations at this particular restaurant. And I found the story fascinating for two reasons. One is it demonstrated the ways in which we know artificially intelligent systems can be more brittle or more vulnerable to certain kinds of mm. fraud or misuse than humans would be because they're not at any restaurants. They're not tasting food. They're not human critics interacting with each establishment that they're going to assess or rank. So we've seen this in art projects. There was the artist who pulled a trolley full of mobile phones down a street in Germany, which confused Google's um, Android operating system into thinking there was a traffic jam. Like it is easy to fake or trick uh, computer generated systems more in ways that humans would not be fooled by. That was number one. What I found perhaps more troubling for humans was that uh, for one night only, the journalist opened his shed for uh, paying clientele. Actually, it was free, but they went to Iceland, they bought some frozen food. Uh, it was all very clearly a shed. It was very clearly uh, not a great meal. It was cheap wine. And yet people were so convinced by the number one ranking that the restaurant had on TripAdvisor that even in the face of what their taste and their eyes should have been telling them, some asked to come back. There was still the kind of the ranking or the score was more persuasive perhaps than their own experiences or senses. And that's what I found so interesting and troubling about that particular story because that fits in with what we know about the consequences of poorly designed algorithmic systems that even though we know they're brittle, even though we know they have mistakes, even though we know that they contain errors, we still as humans um, kind of are persuaded 
by scores and ranks and they influence our perceptions of the world. Yes, and I think for all of the talk about uh, long tail effects, in fact, what the internet has caused is more of an aggregation towards the, the very top uh, and, uh, and increasingly people chasing things because they're, uh, they're being chased by other people. Uh, you, uh, you talk a lot in the book about privacy and uh, you say you have a, a particular bugbear about uh, people who say, oh, uh, folks no longer care about privacy, particularly a, a critique that's often uh, levied at uh, Gen Y and millennials. Uh, do you uh, d d tell us tell us more about your uh, your views on uh, privacy and and why people might be giving a lot of data away but still caring about the consequences? I feel like even in the two years, it's been two and a half years, I think, since I wrote Made by Humans and that chapter. But at the time, what I was trying to challenge was, particularly when I talk about data ethics and I talk about um, using uh, sensitive information about people, it would invariably be pointed out to me, and perhaps it's because, because I am a millennial, but it would come up on panels and it would come up at um, festivals that millennials don't care about privacy. And people would always give examples of their children posting photos of themselves on Instagram or whatever other platform it would be as a reason to argue that any other form of data collection was therefore permissible. That, well, because in this context, people are sharing information about themselves, then whatever I want to do over here is fine. So there's a number of um, academics. I know I cited Dana Boyd in the book, um, but sociologists would be the first to say that our experiences of privacy are contextual. And I know that for me, growing up online, I mean, I think I would have been in high school when we started using MySpace. And by the time I was in university, Facebook was starting. Um, our experiences of what we share online are actually very nuanced and um, I actually think now, particularly millennials and younger generations, there's a very complex system to what you do and don't share online. So, you know, for example, I know I talked about in the book um, that I have different personalities on different platforms and I expand my audience based on that platform. So LinkedIn is for doing absolutely nothing but just having a very static CV. Twitter is for work conversations. Facebook and Instagram to the extent that I use them, which is not that frequently anymore, were for more social engagement with friends. And what we're seeing now is even with, um, I think there was this sense that is broken now there was a sense that people were themselves online as they were themselves offline. And hopefully today that just would immediately be, well, that's not true. It's clear that it's much more contested and fragmentary and, you know, people can be much more abusive for one, uh, for mm. one example online than they are offline. But there was a time when it, we thought that they were equivalent. And now I see things like, teenagers creating six Instagram accounts for themselves or using platforms in ways that deliberately obscure their identity. So only having conversations in the comments on one account. So there's a much more savvy, concerned, 
questioning approach to privacy, I think, among young people than perhaps historically they've been given credit for. What is something that I've observed, particularly in debates around COVID-19 is we no longer seem to be able to have conversations around privacy that are contextual or nuanced to kind of understand that in our daily lives, before the web, we um, reveal and keep closed parts of ourselves depending on who we're talking to and the context within which we're providing information. You know, that, that there is no glass half full or half empty or somewhat exposed, less exposed binary that is our relationship with privacy is that it's very nuanced and it's context specific. Now in the media and particularly in the context of COVID-19, we have we increasingly tend to assess the role technology plays in our lives only by whether it's privacy preserving or not. So the, the idea being, if it is privacy preserving, absolutely. If, if your identity is completely obscured, then that is um, a goal or always a beneficial goal. And the alternative, which is that your privacy is not protected and, and your identity is somewhat revealed, is an undesirable goal. It's like it can either preserve your privacy or it can't. And particularly in the context of healthcare, particularly in the context of government service provision, the reality is our relationship is usually much more nuanced. Um, part of the way in which we um, have trust in systems and part of the way in which we know systems can be trusted is the extent to which we enter into a real relationship with them. So it's just a complicated. It is complicated. And now I worry, as compared with, what, three, four years ago, where it was, people have given up everything. Therefore, everything we do is fine. Now we're kind of leaning towards, if it does not preserve privacy absolutely, in this very stark sense, it cannot be good for people. Mm. Yeah, and it's so interesting to think about the evolution between the way in which you used some of these platforms uh, when you were at uh, school and university and the way in which they're being used now. You talk about uh, putting a lot of yourself out on a, a site called Live Journal, which is uh, uh, no longer actively used. Uh, and I think about that in contrast to uh, the millennial cohort who will often, set, if they do set up a Facebook page, which is becoming increasingly rare, uh, we'll set up a profile with a deliberately misspelled name and so uh, someone can't, uh, a potential employer can't track it, track it down and, and they can control who finds them. Yeah, it's something that I'm sure um, anyone trying to engineer a platform to interact with humans must find very annoying is that humans are constantly changing and they will change in response to whatever the platform tries to get them to do. So... It's like trying to catch fish in a fast-moving stream. They're just never, ever going to stay still for you to be entirely sure that the human behaviour on your platform is predictable. 
it's uh, it's striking to me that the privacy issue has also moved into areas we wouldn't have imagined a decade ago. Uh, for example, the uh, following of people on these exercise apps, uh, most commonly Strava, uh, where that's then exposing uh, someone's movements through the course of a day, and, and that's a, a degree of privacy people are able to uh, are willing to to give up uh, in order to uh, to humble brag with others about uh, what sort of exercise they've been doing. Where do you think that's going to go? Where do you think the frontiers of, uh, of, of, share, of, of privacy are going to be in a few years' time? Are you a Strava user? I am, but I'm largely private. Okay, yeah. Um, most of the people now that I know on Strava are mostly private. This era that we're living through, and that we're in a pandemic, has thrown some of my hopes and predictions up in the air. But up until a couple of months ago, I would have said that what I hope we will eventually do is we'll start to crack down on secondary uses of information, such that people can still retain the benefits that they get from sharing, for example, their Strava um, cycling times and cycling routes with their own network, the network that they choose to share them with. Um, and those second order, third order uses of your Strava data that you wouldn't have expected to happen. We're going to hopefully, I think, start to set out more clearly what kinds of secondary uses of information will be permissible. It's not that I think we'll go like no secondary uses. Whatever you supply, for example, to Strava can only be used for the purposes of you enjoying Strava and nothing else. But I think the status quo that we have, which is either any and all secondary uses can just be negotiated away via contract or are permissible because if you obfuscate the data in some way, if you anonymize it, it's no longer your data. And instead, I think we're going to hopefully set some much clearer um, safeguards around secondary uses via regulation. The point that we're getting to now is that increasing distrust in platforms, I'm not so, not so much platforms like Strava, but when I think about the major platforms that we say that we, that we study for a variety of uses, you know, whether it's we study them as researchers in sociology and anthropology, or we study them for national security reasons, as in major platforms, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Distrust is eroding the quality of interactions that you get on those platforms. Distrust changes human behavior, and unless people have some very clear safeguards or some very clear, like, this is not going to end up on an um, openly licensed map of Strava journeys, which can be reverse engineered to demonstrate my movements, um, I think we're going to end up looking at secondary uses a lot more. Mm. All of this really comes together with the recent advent of a COVID-safe app. Have you downloaded it? And what do you think about it? I have downloaded it. Um, I, I, have many, I have many opinions. I actually, one of my first opinions is that I have overwhelming sympathy and empathy for the engineering team developing COVID-safe because having been on complex software projects 
that, are, that need to be implemented at a national level and account for policy needs as well as um, infrastructure and software needs as well as face into public opinion and changing public opinion. Um, they've just had a very, very hard job and I have no doubt that they've been working weekends and weeknights and that they've managed to pull together um, an application that has clear FAQs, that um, is relatively easy for an end user to navigate. So by end user, I mean, you, you know, you or I just downloading it to our phones. When you look at the positives, like this is the first um, application that has been rolled out that I can think of by a federal government in Australia that is so concerned with um, safeguarding privacy that they've invested heavily in explaining to people in plain English what is occurring in the context of using COVID safe. They've followed privacy minimizing principles to reduce information that's collected via COVID safe. Um, that's all positive. The negative is that um, I'm actually not sure that it's going to work um, for, for a bunch of reasons. I know that we've talked about app penetration. Can enough people download COVID safe? Uh, at the moment, we have the well-documented iPhone issues that if you have an iOS device, uh, you need to keep it on and running in the foreground for it to be measuring devices in proximity. So it's not as, as functional as an app. There's also people who won't have devices. Like my sneaking suspicion is that app-based proximity tracking in general. So this idea that we could use our mobile devices to further automate who we're in proximity to during a pandemic. And if you look at the Google and Apple solution, they kind of see that as fully automating. So replacing human contact traces. It's just not clear to me, and I guess this is the experiment. We're testing it out around the world right now. Governments are experimenting with using apps to measure proximity, but it's just not clear to me how effective or useful they will actually be for contact tracing. And in fact, some of the messaging, I think further, um, some of the ways we think about technology and apps um, could end up harming our lessening of lockdown restrictions because we know that we already have, as, as humans, uh, abundance of confidence in um, software, in computers. We know that we are prone to automation bias, that we are more likely to um, trust the outputs of a machine than perhaps we should, even when they're making mistakes. And so to hear the app talked about um, as a physical barrier to getting COVID-19 or as a mechanism to keep you safe, that worries me. All it does is record, to the extent that it does record, all it does is it makes it faster to contact you, to tell you that you've been in proximity to someone with COVID-19. It actually in no way prevents you from getting COVID-19. And when I see that public messaging, knowing we already have all of this trust in devices, whether or not they um, necessarily have done enough to be worthy of trust. Um, I just think 
we've got to be really careful. You know, if we have a second wave of infections and people say, well, I had COVID safe downloaded, I thought it was fine. Um, it's just never been the case that that's the role COVID safe plays. Yes, and the way I think about it is uh, it works by the square of the uptake rate. So if you've got 20% uptake, then the chance that any two people will have the app on their phone is 20% by 20%, which is 4%. Uh, you go up to 40% and you've got 16% coverage of contacts. You go up to 60%, you've got 36% coverage of contacts. So even uh, as you as you get to a clear majority of the population, you've only got uh, a minority of the, uh, the interactions. Uh, so yes, as you say, we want to be uh, sensible about the extent to which this is solving the problem. Uh, I wanted to ask you more broadly, how has the COVID shutdown affected your thinking about technology and, and social media? Are you uh, Zooming furiously like the rest of us? I am Zooming furiously. Um, we're teaching online. We transitioned to online uh, in mid-March in the space of a week. I remember how quickly we packed up the office. Um, so most of my day now is Zoom calls during the day or calls in Teams, and then FaceTime or Google Hangouts in the early evenings with family and friends um, to you know, catch up with them because all of our families in Western Australia. So I spend a lot of time in front of screens, which has um, changed my sense of pleasure from screens quite profoundly. I'm not as enthusiastic about them as I thought I was, I can say that. Right. There was a, there was a really great essay uh, about a month ago and it was called This is Just the Beginning or Everything is the Beginning. It was on the cut and the author talked about, you know, a week before the shutdown, he was writing a book about um, trolls on the web and that social networks were tearing us apart and then in the space of a week from the shutdown he's had to he'd had to rethink all of his perspectives about technology and his relationships with people and you know now at that point in time all he could see social networks as was a way to connect with each other and I think we're all doing that there are perspectives and beliefs that we had before this kind of wholesale change in the way that we work and the way that we live, that now we're being forced to renegotiate. And I think I'm definitely going through that at the moment, where I remember the week before the shutdown, I was due to give a keynote at the Melbourne Design Week about design philosophies in artificial intelligence. And when I look at some of the writing that I was doing around that time, now it's hard to imagine those issues still feeling so urgent in six months time. I feel as though back in February, certain issues seemed absolutely important and important to everyone. And one of those, particularly because it's my area and my bubble was whether we were designing artificial intelligence responsibly, safely, sustainably, what did it mean to create ethical systems? And there was this underlying assumption that uh, these systems were central to our ability to do responsible, safe, sustainable things. And there was a kind of, um, they were what we circled around. Whereas now I just feel like 
quite rightly or reasonably, they've been pushed to the side as we, as we, as humans, try to figure out how to get through a pandemic. And there's really no situation right now within which the way that we've responded to a pandemic has been wholly given over to automated systems in the way that I think a lot of our writing and thinking before the pandemic presumed was imminent. Mm. So I think what I'm trying to work out now is what is actually pressing and urgent to address in artificial intelligence and how might some things that have been made explicit through this process, you know, that, um, for example, our platform providers are much more able to change and intervene in their platform infrastructure than we anticipated. Um, like, what, what behaviour changes now could shape what we do um, as we learn to adjust? to this new era that we're in. As a technology researcher, what tips do you have about uh, how you use social media and technology? Uh, do you ha are there things that you do differently from other people and how you engage with uh, platforms and how you manage email that the rest of us could learn from? So some of this is probably not very unusual, but I probably two years ago, plugged my phone in in another room. So now our phones are always plugged in in the living room uh, in the evening, which means that I do spend a solid hour or so before falling asleep with no devices anywhere near me. They're never, they're not in the bedroom. So I can, it makes it easier to disconnect. I spend a lot of time reading in the late evenings. I'll usually read until I fall asleep. and. That's possibly, I, to me, it seems normal, but I definitely feel as though part of being a technology researcher is I've become very systematic about when and how I choose to disconnect. Um, I'm mm. starting to even be more ruthless. I'm starting to cull um, the length of time I'll spend on certain platforms because particularly lately, I've needed to reduce the information flows. I'm still notoriously bad at email. You said tips for managing overflowing inboxes. Um, one of the things my uh, uh, auto text has learnt to complete sentences with is apologies for missing your email because that's how frequently, <laughs> that's how frequently I um, am late in responding to emails and there's always 400, 500 unread emails in my inbox, which are obviously not because I get them overnight. It's because they just go further and further and further down the inbox. And my working assumption is if it was really urgent, people would email me a second time. So I've tried a lot of inbox organizers. I was a big user of Unroll, which was um, a inbox organizer that was very controversially acquired by a data analytics outfit that did advertising in the United States. And it turned out that all of our email data was being used as part of marketing analytics and business intelligence. Um, so I've tried using tools in the past and I feel like I've just become much more of a purist. Um, mm. And, and, and actually I've reduced my relationships with technology. I think I'm more and more going offline. I'm reducing channels. I'm 
putting clear boundaries between contexts within which I have my device with me and contexts within which I need to um, have to cope with being without it because usually I want it. I went off Twitter for a week, uh, a couple of, uh, probably about six weeks ago now, which is the first time I've been off Twitter for any extended period of time since I joined, which was almost a decade ago. And I noticed that it was muscle memory, that even though I had given my husband my password and I could not access the app, because it was still there on my screen, I just kept pressing it. Like it was an instantaneous, oh yep, check it. And then obviously it would come up with the login screen and I would just swipe away. But I just couldn't stop the kind of muscle memory of cycling through the platforms that I checked every day. So that was quite interesting to me that, you know, it's even though I knew I wasn't using it, I couldn't stop my thumb from pressing the icon every day. Yes, I'm fascinated by this uh, randomised trial of Facebook users, which uh, paid a, a sample of Facebook users to go off the platform for a month and found that doing so made them considerably happier than a randomly selected control group. So I um, got booted off Facebook for six months um, because they changed the two-factor authentication in a really sneaky way because for a while, and it's still in place, the only way that you could enter your second factor of authentication was having the app installed on your phone. It would be like, um, you know, you log in with your correct password in the browser and then you need to authenticate using the app installed on your phone and I just refused to do it. So therefore I couldn't log into Facebook for six months and I kind of realised I didn't miss it. And I didn't, I couldn't access invites, but it turns out that was fine. I couldn't see what anyone else was doing. It turned out that was fine. And so now I just don't really use Facebook at all because I was just stubbornly refusing to download the app on my phone for so long that I've just gotten used to not having it in my life. <laughs> In terms of uh, how things rather than devices can influence us, I wanted to ask you about your home. Uh, you uh, live in a house designed by one of Australia's great modernist architects, Harry Seidler. Uh, how, why, why did you choose that home and how does it influence you? So I can't figure out where my interests are my interests and where my interests are my shared interests with my partner, my husband, but I can definitely say that we have been architecture fans for a very long time. Um, and kind of uh, from before moving back to Australia, we've always enjoyed, um, we went to the Architecture Biennale in Venice. We've, um, wherever we are around the world, we'll usually go and look at some interesting um, architectural sites of whatever that place is. I remember just being on terrible walks through like the back streets of Singapore and Hong Kong with friends of ours to just photograph otherwise nondescript government buildings because they happen to be by particular modernist architects. So I can't figure out how much of that was like, <laughs> I would have done that or it's that he would have done it and that therefore I've learned to share his interests. But nonetheless, like we both really like modernist architecture. So we, we live in one of his early commissions and it's interesting because when you're in it, you can tell that it's designed by um, 
a, a, an architect and an architect of real skill because it's got what you just call good bones. It's got a beautiful sense of proportion. It is a split level such that you can kind of see through the whole house from nearly wherever you are in the house. Um, it's got lovely light. You rarely ever have to have lights on in any part of the house during the day, but it's one of his early commissions. So it resembles much more your kind of typical late 1960s flat roofed modernist residential dwellings than some of his later commissions, which were really much more about innovation in concrete. He did the uh, Australian Embassy in Paris as an example. So on his website, this is always relegated to a, fo a footnote this particular um, group of housing. It's never ever trumpeted mm. as a example of his um, kind of the types of commissions that he became known for. But it's nonetheless a really beautiful um, space and you know, we couldn't afford, like, let's be clear, we couldn't afford anything that was an actual um, kind of later life, really highly renowned commission. So for us, it's um, just a really, it's a nice space to live in. There was this line I remember in Girls, that television show that was really popular a few years ago that Lena Dunham mm. created. And it was two characters talking about whether they enjoyed the view outside a building or they enjoyed a view inside a building because it said something about your inner life. And they were talking about um, whether you had a beautiful neighborhood or a beautiful inner house as a metaphor for kind of your inner life and your outer life and what you get pleasure from. And in that sequence, the characters talked about both being inner house fans, like as in if they felt like the space that they lived in had balance and equilibrium and light, then it didn't matter if it was an ugly building or a ugly neighborhood inside the house, it gave them equilibrium and balance. And I think about that a lot because that's definitely I, uh, our approach to our home here is um, we're terrible gardeners outside. I haven't touched the garden in months. But inside it's, um, it's got beautiful light and it's got simplicity. And I have learnt over many years of cohabitation to keep things relatively clean and close drawers and keep the cupboards closed. So it's just a kind of nice space to come home to. So I like the idea that interiors tell us something about our interior lives and exteriors about our exterior life. Although I think my wife is a landscape architect and thinks a lot about the relationship between the outdoors and our interior life, might quibble a little. Anyhow, let me ask you one of my standard questions. What advice would you give to your teenage self? I saw this question come through via email and it really stumped me because my teenage years were, uh, I think, pretty anguished. I tried on lots and lots of personalities. I changed interests probably every six months. I remember at one point thinking I could be a bodyboarding champion because in the girls bodyboarding championships there were only ever like five or six competitors. So it would be easy for me to um, succeed. But I kind of don't think I'd have it any other way. Like I guess my advice to my teenage self, knowing how conflicted and uh, 
anxious and uncertain I was and trying to figure out what my personality would be that would stick, I probably my advice to my teenage self would simply be, you'll get there. You'll, you'll, you'll find the edges that will stick over years instead of over months. But I probably wouldn't change any of that anxious kind of grasping for things to be interested in. So I think I'd just say, hold steady. You'll be all right. What's something you used to believe, but no longer do? I think I used to believe that the fiction that I read and the texts that we studied in English literature were fiction that even though they depicted worlds with despotic leaders or considered the consequences of human greed and selfishness, it still to me seemed like they were fiction and that ultimately everyone is very good and everyone is trying their best. And I think as I've become an adult, I have realized how much these stories draw from the worst parts of our lives in an attempt to warn us against them in future. So I think I, I believe that humans are more complicated and that things can get worse before they get better. It still is a shock to me when that happens and I'm like, wow, things can be quite bad and difficult because I think I still somehow think fiction is fiction and is never replicated in real life. Mm. You, you also write in the book about how you've shifted your view, and, and maybe this is related, uh, on regulation of the digital economy, uh, that during your time at the Australian Digital Alliance, you were much more laissez-faire and critical of government interventions as being uh, uh, dour and clunky. Uh, now you're more open to the idea that government might have uh, an appropriate role there. Yeah, I think maybe it's... Maybe it's getting older, maybe it's becoming apparent, but I've kind of gotten to where I'm like, well, we've got to give it a go, as in clear, we've got to try other things. Um, and then there is no perfect solution. What's clear is that laissez-faire or no regulation of the digital economy has, I think you can clearly say, exacerbated some of the issues that we have on platforms today. I mean, you have two choices usually with regulation. Your legal listeners will probably howl in protest at my pithy summation of two choices. You would probably howl in protest, actually, knowing um, your role. But thinking about usually your attempts to regulate anything go down two paths. Either you try to be as explicit as possible um, about what it is that you're trying to regulate to reduce uncertainty for anyone complying with that legislation. And usually that results in some... Um, issues of application two or three years down the track. It struggles to um, keep pace with changes in society, culture, etc. So, you know, usually your choices are be as clear as you can and as certain as you can to reduce uncertainty for people, or you do something high levels and principles based that allows for uncertainty, but then is hard to interpret unless and until you are able to test it through the courts. So it's, there's not going to be a perfect solution in, in a regulatory space for technology either, but mm. I, I feel like this, it's just bad argument. We've kind of gone as far as we can with it. Um, 
I know that the example I use in the book is of pharmaceuticals regulation, where we're almost 100 years into pharmaceuticals regulation now. In fact, we're pretty much 100 years. The first attempt at regulation of pharmaceuticals was in the United States in about 1910, 1914, and it's still a work in progress. We're still constantly plugging gaps, um, amending legislation, realizing there's things we didn't account for, figuring out where we should have been more strict and we weren't. It's 100 years of progress and that's where we need to think of technology as being on the same journey. Yes, it will never be perfect, but the idea that this is a form of human innovation that should sit outside of democratically elected humans trying to manage people and processes and systems so as to reduce the harm they have to their citizens. I just think we're, we're past the, these are somehow special and exempt from regulation. When are you most happy? When I am um, waking my baby Jean up in the morning because she's always in a good mood and when I'm reading in bed next to my husband um, before we go to sleep. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Probably the hour before. I, I definitely don't stay physically healthy or as much as I should. I need to be better at exercising. But the hour before I fall asleep where my device is plugged in outside the room and I do just read um, usually for at least half an hour, 45 minutes, it, it clears my mind. It makes me feel like I'm absorbing information more productively and, and in kind of a richer way. I do like the idea that uh, the answer of a technologist to staying mentally and physically healthy is uh, unplug. <laughs> uh, do you have any guilty pleasures? Um, the second glass of wine in an evening when I say I'm going to have one. <laughs> and uh, finally on uh, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life um there have been a lot and i feel as though each new experience that i have they'll teach me something new about what it means to live an ethical life probably at the moment someone that i'm thinking about and it's not because we work together or because she's my ultimate boss but Genevieve Bell has definitely taught me um, that living an ethical life means, um, can mean speaking out and can mean making people uncomfortable. And she has really helped me um, understand that uh, I think my innate desire is to please everyone and to want to rock the boat as little as possible. And she is someone who, and I know she talked about this on your podcast, but she is just very clear on the duty that she has to make the world a better place. And that if she sees something that is harmful or is going to cause harm, that she has a duty to speak out about it. And so that's something that I'm really trying to channel a little bit more is kind of getting comfortable with the idea that speaking out and ch challenging um, is about making people uncomfortable and about making me uncomfortable. 
Yes, getting comfortable with uh, critics, uh, particularly those who uh, are vociferous, is uh, is not an easy space to move into. But I think, as you say, it's it's important. Ellen Broad, thank you very much for appearing on the on the Good Life podcast today. No, thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. Ellen's book is Made by Humans: The AI Condition. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee and Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Michelle Simmons, Joshua Gans and Genevieve Bell. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or comment on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.